Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. In this episode, Dr. Leah Glazer and students from her 2021 public history class at Central Connecticut State University present stories about the state's witness trees, a project that evolved out of a semester-long class. What's a witness tree, you ask? Find out in this episode of Grading the Nutmeg. Protests around the historical roots of racial discrimination and violence manifested last summer in a national reckoning over America's collective memory as embodied in public statues. Over the course of a few weeks, protesters and local governments alike toppled monuments and memorials raising national conversations about their purpose and about what we as a society remember. At the same time, climate change caused severe superstorms and wildfires, likewise consuming our collective memories, this time in the form of old growth trees and forests. As trees have fallen, they have brought down utility lines, crashed through homes and cars and blocked roads, inaugurating aggressive policies to clear street trees. Local environmentalists across the state are lobbying to protect urban trees based on numerous environmental benefits. Trees absorb carbon dioxide, clean the air, and emit oxygen. They prevent heat islands in cities. They control flooding. Rich in environmental benefits, mature trees have also defined Connecticut's landscape and self-identity. They root local human histories to our places by physically and symbolically storing individual and collective memories. As I described in a photo essay in the spring 2021 issue of Connecticut Explored, Trees are central characters in creation and origin stories. Native, biblical, and even in Connecticut with our revered charter oak. Furthermore, trees often outlive people. Those in areas of human occupation grow with and often serve communities. We use them to orientate ourselves on the landscape, mark distance, provide shade and infrastructure and define places. In Connecticut, they witnessed the changing environmental, political, social, economic, and cultural landscapes for decades some even centuries. We planted or designated others as living memorials and monuments, objects of memory, not unlike the statues we build. The stories you're about to hear evolved out of a semester long course on local and community history, part of Central Connecticut State's University public history program. We met only online due to the pandemic. While we have all spent too much time in front of our screens, most of us have tried to occasionally escape outdoors. The time has allowed us to notice both cultural and natural resources in our neighborhoods and communities that we may not have noticed before. We notice the largest trees for their beauty or shade, but these are also the oldest ones, and they can serve as conduits for local stories. You will hear how stories about trees may be integral characters in our history as sites of gatherings and meetings. They may serve as artifacts of forestry practices or manufacturing activities witnessed long-term change in development or reflected socio-political values about land and natural resources. By hearing these stories, we hope that you will see trees differently as cultural as well as natural resources that hold local memory, root us to our places, and deserve preservation. My name is Andy King, and I'll be telling the story of the Bloody Heart Flowers in Mashantucket, Connecticut. Connecticut is home to one of the greatest attractions in the world, Foxwoods Resort Casino. The casino's merchandise, highway signs, and even its gambling tokens bear the same symbol, the silhouette of a lone tree behind a fox. 
This is the tribal symbol of the Mashantucket Pequot Tribal Nation. It provides insight for the significance of trees to indigenous culture. Boxwoods is on the Mashantucket Pequot Reservation, the land of people who have inhabited New England for over 12,000 years. The reservation, located in southeastern Connecticut, occupies 1,250 acres. The English seized a large portion of this land from the tribal nation during the Pequot War and Connecticut illegally sold it. But the Pequot nation slowly reclaimed parts of it over time as a result of the Mashantucket Pequot Indian Land Claims Settlement Act of 1983, which granted the tribe federal recognition and the right to purchase their own land back. The significance of land is in their name. Mashantucket translates as much wooded land, which the tree in the tribal symbol represents. The fox represents the meaning of Pequot, people of the foxes, and the white symbol underneath it represents Robin Casa Cinnamon, the first sachem of the tribe after the massacre at Mystic Fort in the Pequot War. The dense woodlands represented in the tribal symbol are home to trees significant to Mashantucket culture, including maple, oak, hickory, and cedar. One type in particular represents a deep history. In the mast swamp in what is now Ledger, Connecticut, rhododendron flowers bloom on their bony laurel trees in the early summer. Typically, these flowers are a bright pink, purple, or white, but in this forest, their centers bloom a dark red color, which are referred to as bloody heart. This secluded swamp was referred to as Cupacomic, or hiding place. The story I am about to share was found in Anne Brockington's personal papers, a Groton woman and member of the Daughters of the American Revolution, owned by the Indian and Colonial Research Center in Mystic, Connecticut. Please keep in mind that the earliest known writings of the story are from the late 19th century, approximately 200 years after the events took place. The story goes that during the Pequot War in 1637, just when the rhododendrons started blooming, a man named Puttaquapic led the tribe from Mystic Fort to seek refuge in Cupacomic, taking a hidden path. Unfortunately, Massachusetts troops found the tribe and imprisoned more than 100 people. They enslaved 80 women and children of this group and forced 30 of those to walk a plank and drown in the Thames River. The troops initially spared Puttaquapic from the execution as they hoped that he could benefit them in the war but he refused to be any advantage to the English. The Pequot leader was tied and shot under the blooming rhododendrons. As Puttaquapic died, he cursed the flowers to bloom a dark red to represent the blood of his tribe that were forced to starve and drown by the selfish, merciless Englishman. Today, this piece of land is protected and inaccessible to the public. However, if you want to appreciate the land of the reservation, Lantern Hill is a hiking trail whose peak has a scenic outlook with a stunning view of foxwoods in the distance. Within land, there is history. Bloody heart flowers revere the story of victims of genocide and the culture that colonizers tried to destroy. Today, there are over 1,000 members registered in the tribe and their history is preserved and taught at the Mashantucket Pequot Museum and Research Center in Mashantucket, Connecticut. Empowering Native people begins with rights to their original land and resources. It is essential to culture and identity. By learning about the history of trees, we can understand and appreciate local history. My name is David Procherena, and I am telling the story of the Pinchot Sycamore in Simsbury. 
Growing 99 feet high and sporting a trunk nearly 30 feet in circumference, the Pinchot sycamore, growing just beside the Farmington River in a park bearing its name, is Connecticut's oldest and largest living tree. Named after the first head of the U.S. Forest Service, Simsbury-born conservationist Gifford Pinchot, the tree is estimated to be between 200 and 500 years old and has borne witness to an important part of the history of early New England. If average age estimations are accurate, then the sycamore was witness to the unfortunate breakdown of relations between the colonists and natives of New England during the 1600s. The settlement of Simsbury was officially established in 1670, but the ties between the two peoples have been worsening since the landing of the pilgrims some 50 years prior. Massasoit, the chief of the Wampanoag tribe when the Mayflower first arrived, had maintained good relations between his people and the colonists during his time as the tribe's leader. However, when his son, Metacom, also known as Philip, took over the tribe following his father's death, relations degraded further until outright violence broke out in mid-1675. Feeling that they had been unfairly treated long enough, with natives already having taken a major blow to their culture and way of life after their losses in the Pequot War, Metacom led a native coalition to attack colonial settlements across New England in what became known as King Philip's War. The Connecticut Council of War, formed when the war began, realized the growing danger of the Native Coalition and sent out warnings to Simsbury's residents, heeding them to flee to safety in Windsor in October 1675. This court orders that the people of Simsbury shall have a week's time to secure themselves and their corn there. And at the end of the week from this date, the soldiers now in garrison at Simsbury shall be released to their attendance there. From the Journal of the Colony of Connecticut General Court. However, the Narragansett tribe had been unfairly pushed into the conflict after the leaders of the colonial militia declared them to be aggressors following the participation of several individual Narragansetts that had joined Medicom. The governor of Plymouth Colony, Jeremiah Winslow, organized a preemptive attack on the tribe in December of 1675 in an effort to prevent them from organizing attacks in the spring. In retaliation for the terrible acts of violence the militia had committed against them in this effort, the Narragansetts counterattacked vigorously in the following months. They pushed the colonial militia back and advanced south towards Connecticut. Many colonial towns caught in the path of their fury were completely destroyed, such as Simsbury in March of 1676. The Narragansetts' destruction of the town was thorough with all essentials left behind by the townspeople being taken and every building burned to the ground. Those who had fled to Windsor at the behest of the Council of War remained there until 1677. While some residents did not return, most of those who fled did come back to rebuild the town. However, rebuilding was not without difficulty. A committee was formed to help with the arduous task of starting the town over, but not everyone who returned had to put into account defense against possible future native attacks meaning they didn't feel obliged to listen to the committee. Even as the town began to rebuild, it did not truly recover for a decade after the end of the war. Throughout it all, the Pinchot Sycamore stood as much a symbol of perseverance as perhaps the Charter Oak, having survived Simsbury's complete destruction. Though all that it witnessed, it could also be seen as a reminder of the rocky relationship between the natives that once called New England their home and the struggle that they endured in the pursuit of maintaining that claim in the face of the colonists. For the residents of Simsbury, the sycamore can be seen as a symbol of their strength in the face of terrible adversity, having persevered just as the original townspeople did when their home was practically wiped off the map.
My name is Helena Torres, and I'm telling the story of the Witch Elm Tree in Hartford, Connecticut. During the witch hunt of the 17th century in Connecticut, the people of Hartford accused 11 of their neighbors of suspicion of practicing witchcraft. Out of the 11, the jury found only four guilty. The town authorities hanged them. The townspeople accused two other women, one for possessing secrets and the other for not being Puritan. A lack of witchcraft evidence led Elizabeth Seeger to be released. She later fled to Rhode Island. The greensmith hosted many parties for these neighbors filled with wild dances and drinking many bottles of sack, a concentrated wine brought in from Spain or the Canary Islands at Bernard Park. The townspeople labeled the parties as a band of devil worshippers. Greensmith helped her friend Goody Aries care for 12-year-old Elizabeth Kelly, who one day grew ill, blamed, and accused her nanny Aries of bewitching her. At her trial, Rebecca agreed to confess. She betrayed her husband and accused him of devil worship. By guilty verdict of witchcraft, authorities condemned Rebecca and Nathaniel to hang on December 30, 1662. Rebecca Greensmith and accused Mary Barnes of being a witch. She was condemned to die on January 6, 1663. By the 23rd, the town authorities performed a public execution and hanged them under the shade of the elm tree on Albany Avenue, marking the last witch hanging in Connecticut. The panic of the witch hunt trials originates in England when those who supported the English monarchy weaponized the idea of witches for propaganda. Witch hunters John Stern and Matthew Hopkins raised the hysteria level to extremes during the English Civil War. Eventually, the hysteria crossed the Atlantic into New England, as many believed the devil was driving them out of their country due to the series of disasters that had befallen them. Puritans used witch hunts to identify colonists who did not adhere to community norms. Witch hunts were necessary to protect the religious beliefs of the community settling in New England. Puritans believed witches had the power to shapeshift, cause accidents, control the weather, and kill. They settled in the Connecticut colony in 1636, convinced that witchcraft was not a threat in the new land until the conviction of Alice Young. Alice Young became the first woman that hanged as a witch in New England by Windsor authorities in Hartford of 1647, during a two-year epidemic in which 52 people died in her hometown of Windsor, Connecticut from a mysterious illness. The death of Alice Young continued a string of witch trials in Wethersfield due to religious conflicts, superstition, epidemics, and unexplained natural phenomena such as meteors. Similar conflicts transferred to Hartford where the colonial institution called the particular court dispensed justice. Many historians suspect Alice was hanged at the meeting house where the old state house now stands on Main Street. Majority of the later hangings in Hartford took place in the south pasture of the colony, in proximity to the Dutch Point where Irving Street meets Albany Avenue. It is unlikely that someone was hanged before Alice Young as there were no capital laws prior to December 1642. Hangings were public executions for a population to witness as rules of society had to maintain and violating these would result in consequences. Not many firsthand accounts of the witch trials remain in Connecticut. They took place 45 years before Salem. By 1692, a guilty verdict no longer meant death, but labeled convicted as insane or having previous trouble with the law. On October 20, 1930, the Hartford Forester directed workers to remove the witch elm tree after Myers and Gross, owners of an apartment building near the tree, sent a request to the Street Board of Hartford.
My name is Despina Merriman, and I am telling the story of the hail pear tree in Coventry, Connecticut. The year is 1776. On September 22nd, the British made an example of Nathan Hale to warn the patriots to stop their disloyalty to the crown or face the same fate. Even when facing death, Nathan Hale uttered his famous last words, I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. With those last words, Nathan Hale, an American hero, had gone to his maker. This sense of patriotism was all due to his upbringing from a highly educated and politically involved family, to which only one silent witness saw it all, the pear tree that the Hale family grew on their farm. Deacon Richard Hale, Nathan's father, planted the pear tree in the very beginnings of his son's life in Coventry, Connecticut. The pear tree witnessed the growth and development of not just Nathan, but the whole Hale family. Richard Hale was not only a farmer, but was also a man of the faith. He raised his children with high morals and to be enlightened by the ways of God, which in turn shaped Nathan's life. The Hale family descended from Puritans who had proven their patriotism since John Hale, Nathan's Hale great-grandfather who gave one-twelfth of his salary in defense for King Philip's war. Nathan's mother, Elizabeth Strong, came from a highly respected family of high social status. Strong's father, Joseph, represented Coventry for 65 years in the General Assembly of Connecticut. Nathan's family was very much involved in politics, the ministry, business, and law. Before leaving the homestead, the Hales planted a sense of patriotism into Nathan, which he took into adulthood. After the war broke loose, the Hale family showed their sense of patriotism by having the women weave cloth, socks, and mittens for the soldiers while the men were out fighting. Nathan's father created committees aiding the farmers and donating to the soldiers during this time of crisis. Three of Nathan's brothers answered the call to Lexington and enlisted into the military. However, Nathan Hale did not join the military until his best friend, Benjamin Talmadge, wrote to him that it is their duty to fight in this war. Talmadge was a higher-ranked soldier close to George Washington and helped ensure Nathan Hale's promotion to captain. But by the time Nathan Hale signed up for the military, the pear tree that Richard Hale planted was in full bloom. Then, however, Nathan fell into a trap set up by Robert Rogers, and famously, the British executed him for spying. The pear tree witnessed the Hale's family's activities for generation until it was killed during the 1938 New England hurricane. It is important to note that the Hale family raised patriots who served and even died for their country. The Nathan Hale homestead still stands today with people on site who are well informed of the Hale family livelihood. There is not much of Nathan Hale left since most of his belongings have been auctioned off or have been given to the Homestead Museum. However, there is one letter Nathan wrote to his mother in 1774, and it says, I send my most filial duty to my mother and sincere love to my sisters, and am I as ever hope to be your dutiful son. With that, Nathan Hale is remembered as a brave hero of Connecticut. My name is Gregory D. Franklin, and I'm telling the story of Yield Oak, a tree in eastern Connecticut. Pre-revolutionary New England is the story of the shift from Puritans to revolutionaries. This is evident in the development of the Seely family over the course of their time in Connecticut. They went from being a family of Puritans to one of revolutionaries over the course of a few generations. One of those scions, Nathaniel Seely IV, settled by a what is now 400-year-old tree, Yield Oak, a white oak in eastern Connecticut in the 1730s, 
on land previously inhabited by the Aspetucks, a band of the Pawgusset Nation. By the 1600s, colonists' diseases like smallpox decimated the population. The Bennetts and Seelys, Easton's most prominent colonial families, owned the house for four generations before the great-great-granddaughter of Isaac Bennett sold it to the wife of J. Arthur Sherwood in 1925. The Seely family is comparable to the other Puritan families of early New England who arrived seeking religious independence from the Church of England. They first settled in Fairfield in the 1600s, having left England. Robert Seeley, the first settler, arrived in 1630 with Winthrop Fleet. Like the other Puritans, he wished to create their ideal religious society, which they were unable to do in their home country. Soon after arriving, Robert played a role in the founding of Waterbury, establishing a church four years later. In 1637, he fought in the Pequot Ward during the Fort Fight, where he was severely wounded. After the war, he moved to Fairfield and later sold his home to his son, Nathaniel Seeley I, before dying in New York by 1697. His family remained in Fairfield until Nathaniel Seeley IV built his house in what is now Easton, which was being settled by people from Fairfield. The Seeley family's continued prominence in local affairs is reminiscent of other settler families in the state and New England as a whole. Since the Seeley family came to New England as part of the Puritan migration in the 17th century, they were part of the old Puritan zeitgeist in the area. They witnessed the rise and fall of this zeitgeist. From the 1690s to the 1760s, the Puritan colonists in Connecticut gradually transformed into Americans. Nathaniel Seeley V was born during a time of colonial turmoil. His birth in 1727 coincided with the beginning of the Great Awakening. The Puritans' strict religious hierarchy began to collapse as a result of the awakening. The idea of political freedom began to emerge from the idea of religious freedom that was slowly emerging. Nathaniel saw these changes as he came of age. As an adult, Nathaniel enlisted during the French and Indian War, as, like many colonists, he likely saw it as an effort to protect his home against the French and the Native American allies. He joined the American Revolutionaries and he served as a lieutenant in the 4th Regiment of the Connecticut Militia during the Revolutionary War. He was later promoted to captain. Yield Oak has witnessed the development of a New England community and a family's journey from colonists to Americans. It has seen the expansion and changes that made Easton, Connecticut, what it is today. The Seelys played a major role in the history of Easton, but they also serve as a microcosm of the shift of the old Puritan communities of Connecticut into the people who participated in the revolution. Yield Oak's continued existence is a testament to the enduring legacy of that history. My name is Cameron Clark, and I am telling the story of John Brown's tree in Torrington. For over 160 years, America's collective memory has thoroughly wedded abolitionist martyr John Brown to the massacres of bleeding Kansas and a burning Virginia armory on the eve of the Civil War. However, his story began not in violence and bloodshed, but in small, sleepy Torrington, Connecticut at the turn of the 19th century. In 1927, however, the loss of a large old oak tree in a storm rejoined these two chapters of Brown's story in the public eye. Torrington's residents referred to the oak as John Brown's tree due to the fact that he played under it as a child and visited the tree every time he returned to Connecticut as an adult. While the practice of slavery in America is overwhelmingly associated with the South, Connecticut residents owned roughly 1,000 enslaved people at the time of Brown's birth, 
And although the number was on paper down to none by the time of his death, pro-slavery sentiments nonetheless infested the nutmeg state. Even those in Connecticut who did not actively engage in the practice of slavery often attempted to smother abolitionist sentiment by preventing such arguments over slavery from even occurring, much akin to the congressional gag rule on the issue of the peculiar institution. This behavior led abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison to refer to the state as the Georgia of the North. However, the Puritan wing of the abolitionist movement in Torrington frequently clashed with this hotbed of pro-slavery and slavery-accommodating sentiments. Owen Brown, who throughout his son's childhood inculcated anti-slavery sentiments, stood in opposition to Garrison's label. The elder Brown entirely detested the so-called domestic institution, as Southerners referred to the practice of slavery, and felt he had a divine duty to dismantle the system, a belief he passed on to his son. Owen Brown took a more conventional role in the abolitionist movement. He rallied neighbors and frequently attended sermons by Calvinist firebrands. These activities ultimately drove him to establish abolitionist associations in the Western Reserve. As such, Owen Brown's practice of abolition and the martyrdom to which it drove his son is inherently tied not just to the greater question of slavery in the country, but represents the fervently religious nature of abolitionism in Connecticut in the early 1800s. This upbringing stoked John Brown's anti-slavery sentiments, and as a young adult, he witnessed the brutal beating of an enslaved man, which solidified his wholehearted opposition to the practice at large. John Brown's story in Connecticut is more expansive than simply the years of his early childhood, as he maintained a connection to both the state and his abolitionist allies therein throughout his adulthood. Connecticut became a refuge for John Brown as an adult from the horrors of Kansas's bloodshed. Brown, who emerged as an embodiment of the fervently religious abolitionist movement, often returned to his ideological breeding grounds to raise support and money for his ventures into Kansas and for the abolitionist movement as a whole. In the nutmeg state, Brown found himself among many sympathetic religious leaders and their flocks, even as recalcitrant slaveholders nonetheless challenged him. Thus, while John Brown's national legacy remains one of violence and religious fervor, which culminated in the ill-fated assault on Harper's Ferry, his ideological roots grew alongside the roots of the tree named for him in Torrington, Connecticut. Hello, my name is Grayson Belisle, and my story is on the McKinley Oak. With many trees, and notably one of the tallest trees in Connecticut, the one which stands out above the rest for its connection to the community of Farmington and its history, is the McKinley Oak. After his assassination in the year 1901, Farmington decided to honor the fallen president with a memorial tree. Beyond its historical significance, the tree is a beautiful example of a pen oak and is 87 feet in height, a tall tree indicative of its age. Located within a five-minute walking distance to Miss Porter School, the McKinley Oak is located at the junction between Main Street, where Farmington Landmarks and Miss Porter School in the 1771 Belt First Church of Christ are located, and Route 4, a road which stretches the length of the town starting in Unionville, as well as including Farmington High School on this route. Sometimes this means that the majority of the town's residents drive past the tree, often unwittingly on their dealings. Unless someone's been to the tree, it's highly unlikely that they'd be aware that the tree is there to memorialize the assassination of President McKinley. The Farmington Village Green Library Association, known as the FVGLA for short. So mentions the date of rededication, July 25, 2006, and the day it was planted, October 23, 1901. As can be seen from that plaque, even if one does visit the tree, it still leaves more questions than answers. What is the FVGLA? What is the connection to Sarah Porter and Miss Porter School? Why was it planted to memorialize President McKinley? Well, the answer 
answers may not seem so obvious, conducting a little research to unearth the roots leads to these answers. The land in which the tree was planted on, the remainder of the Village Green Park for that matter, were owned by Farmington's own, one of his most famous residents, Sarah Porter. Porter founded Miss Porter School, among the most prestigious all-girls high schools in the entire country. Philanthropically throughout her life and upon her passing, she donated the land known as the Village Green Park today to the town of Farmington to be used as a public park space. EGLA was founded by the town to hold the land in trust and to maintain it. Less than a year after Porter's passing in the year 1901, the President of the United States, William McKinley, was tragically assassinated. William McKinley's assassination took the nation by surprise. An anarchist by the name of Leon Chogos had managed to get close enough to the President to fatally shoot and kill McKinley after making a speech in Buffalo, New York. This led to Theodore Roosevelt suing the presidency. Shortly after the assassination, when the McKinley Oak was planted, Teddy Roosevelt was in Farmington at the time, a town in which he thought well of as he spoke enthusiastically about the beautiful homes bordering each street. He was standing with Commander Coles and his wife, Miss Coles. Uh, Roosevelt did not plan on attend did plan on attending the ceremony for the planting of the McKinley Oak. However, he was unable to stay for the full ceremony. While the ceremonies were in progress, President Roosevelt drove about the park and witnessed the planting of the tree, but he would soon have to leave. Many Farmington residents are likely unaware that Roosevelt both stayed in the town and was involved in the planting of the McKinley Oak. At first glance, it seemed random that McKinley was given a memorial tree in Farmington. It begins to look, to look a lot less like that when looking at the context of the time. Connecticut is now primarily Democrat, but this was not the case in 1900 when the United States was within a different party system. Connecticut and the rest of the North and New England at the time were both strongly Republican. The Republican Party at the time believed in a strong central government and were viewed as the party of businessmen, whereas the Democrats believed in states' rights and had a poor rural voting bloc based in the South. McKinley was also a popular president among a wider range of Americans for his heroics in the military. Before the presidency, he served in the Civil War, and during his presidency, he won the Spanish-American War decisively. The sinking of the Maine, whether by the Cubans or not, propelled the U.S. to war. While McKinley didn't want a war, he recognized it was necessary for humanitarian reasons. The terrible human suffering in Cuba convinced McKinley that the war was justified. Knowing the small context, it makes a lot of sense as to why the tree was planted in Farmington at the time with the rest of the Connecticut Republican leading. His military heroics, as well as his tragic assassination, also play a part in the tree being planted. They had the land, and Roosevelt was in the town. And all these factors added up to the planting of the tree to memorialize President McKinley. My name is Emma Koss, and I am telling the story of the Dewey Granby Oak in Granby. The Dewey Granby Oak is a white oak found in Granby, Connecticut, just west of the town center, and many residents consider it a historical landmark. The State Board of Forestry claims that this tree is one of the oldest in New England at an estimated 500 years old. With a 245-inch circumference and 78-foot height, this unique tree embodies a story about the stewardship over land and natural resources from private to public conservation. Centuries before colonial settlement in the region, the Tungsas people identified closely with the land that encompassed the oak to use and share its rich natural resources. For these people, their identity was rooted within the land. In 1678, after King Philip's War, the Connecticut colony took complete ownership of the land for their own military defense. Individuals could not purchase this land through legal means. Years later, in 1736, the land upon which the oak stood became part of the Salmonbrook Society, which was one of four ecclesiastical societies of Simsbury. It was around this time that Isaac Dewey secured ownership of the land, including the tree. The Dewey family owned both the land and the tree for over two centuries, upon which the family owned and operated a local dairy farm called the Dewey Hill Farm. As a prominent business in the community, 
both the farm and tree gained notoriety within the town. The family continued to pass down the business for generations. Starting with only about 40 acres, the family acquired 100 more to expand their business. At the time that the Deweys acquired the land, it was an interesting concept. Historian John Hanson Mitchell writes in Trespassing and Inquiry into the Private Ownership of Land, here in New England, even though the idea of the common was still ingrained in the English soul, the concept of the private plot of each man as lord of his own manor flourished in the new world. Property ownership in New England was a confusing, difficult to understand concept in these early years. At this time, no set rules regulated land ownership in the new world. Rather, property rights and land ownership continued to evolve during this early colonial period. When someone passed away, the land remained in private ownership. Family could pass it down from generation to generation privately, which was a new concept, especially in New England. Owning land also imbued individuals with stature, a source of independence, power, and prominence within their communities. Since the Deweys owned over 100 acres of private land during their period of ownership, they became important figures within Granby. The farm and the family became so significant, the town of Granby recognized the Dewey assets as a public resource. In the 1980s, the Dewey family sold their farm, claiming high taxes and the realization that the dairy farm no longer had a place in a growing suburban community. Following the sale of the farmland, the oldest Dewey family member, Leroy Dewey, still owned about two acres of the land, part of which encompassed the old oak tree. Preserving the familial heritage was very important to Leroy who could not afford to pay the taxes on the plot of land, while the town was making it clear that they wanted to own the tree. While the tree was important to the Dewey family, it was also important to the town. Community members admired how well the tree withstood years of wind, rain, and snow. The tree's age also gave the town regional exposure. It was no secret that the tree had been alive since Columbus set foot on North America. This simple fact brought artists from many different places who wanted to paint or draw the tree. The tree was even placed on the town's stationery, seal, and a flag. The Dewey family understood that the tree might eventually transfer to public stewardship. Leroy's daughter, Carolyn, wrote an open letter published in the Hartford Current stating, the tree has been admired a good many years. We ask only that the town extend proper courtesy to the Dewey family and accord the tree its proper identity of family heritage, the Dewey Oak of Granby. About three years after the letter was published, Leroy Dewey passed away at the age of 90. He passed the tree down to his children, but they did not have the resources or the ability to care for it properly. Since the family could no longer manage the land, the town accepted ownership. As Mitchell writes in his book, it's not who owns the land or whether it's common land or private land. It's a matter of how whoever controls it takes care of it. The land that had been private for so long had become saved by the public. For the last 30 years, the Granby Land Trust has continued to take magnificent care of the Dewey Granby Oak. For Granby, the oak represents much more than just a tree. It is a symbol of family, tradition, identity, and community. We'll be right back after this message. Visit Litchfield, Connecticut from the comfort of your home with the new Tapping Reeve House virtual tour. This immersive experience takes visitors on a journey into the life of a student arriving in Litchfield to study at one of the town's two important schools, the Litchfield Law School and the Litchfield Female Academy. Explore the legacy of America's first law school and its students, including Roger Sherman Baldwin and the infamous Aaron Burr. Start your tour today by visiting litchfieldhistoricalsociety.org slash museums slash virtual tour. 
This project is made possible by funding from Connecticut Humanities. My name is Valerie Chase, and I'm telling the story of a descendant of the Trotter Oak on Wyndham Center Green. In 2013, former classmates at the Wyndham Center Elementary School, many now in their late 60s and 70s, gathered on the green, along with town officials and members of the Anwood Elderkin chapter of the DAR, to dedicate a bronze plaque beneath an oak tree. Mayor Ernie Eldridge spoke, remembering when his sister attended the school and participated in the tree planting. People sat in lawn chairs and pickup trucks to listen as the speaker talked about this patriotic act when they were children. Sponsored by the Civic Group, they spoke about the history of the Charter Oak and the day 69 years ago, in the middle of World War II, when the youngsters assembled on the green to participate in the tree planting. This white oak is a silent sentinel on the Wyndham Center Green. Nestled among 78 colonial Greek Revival, federal, and Italian at homes in the Wyndham Center Historic District, the tree reached a height of 72 feet. Planted on a sunny Friday in April during World War II as a patriotic act and part of an Arbor Day observation, this tree is a descendant of the famous Charter Oak. The children, grades three through eight, accompanied by state officials, the principal, and teachers, walk from the nearby school past the homes of Revolutionary War leaders, Jedediah Elderkin and Ethelet Dyer. They gathered around the young sapling in the hole dug for the occasion. The participants started the ceremony with a rousing chorus of God Bless America. Eighth grade student Donald Potter presented his paper on the Charter Oak, and student Joanne Chernuzik read the poem Trees, written by poet Joyce Kilmer. The keynote speaker, Miss Dorothy Brown, a representative of the Board of Education, read a paper entitled Fight Fire and Plant a Tree. Buried at the base of the sapling is a time capsule that contains the names of the grammar school students, references to the famous parent tree, Arbor Day, and World War II. Whether planting trees, saving their dimes to purchase war bonds, collecting scrap metal, or helping in victory gardens, children assisted in the war effort. Dedication to the nation, a message started at home and reinforced in schools with posters, books, and classroom assignments commonly encouraged patriotism. Watching cartoons produced by Walt Disney, joining the Boy or Girl Scouts encouraged children to develop a positive patriotic attitude. Arbor Day, begun in Nebraska in 1872, is now a national holiday, encouraging a commitment to the earth and our environment. The Arbor Day Foundation's goal of planting 100 million trees throughout the United States from 1942 through 1946 as a patriotic gesture involved children, parents, and politicians together in this common cause. Planting trees is a contribution to the community and frequently a living remembrance to veterans. Placed at the base of each tree, a small American flag acknowledges their service. Many of these trees still stand and will live on as a reminder of the promise to our veterans, the public, and our earth. After the plaque presentation, the friends reassembled at St. Paul's Episcopal Church to look at vintage photographs and share World War II stories with Florence Selleck, who initiated the tree marking. She remembered that sense of patriotism on April 14, 1944, when they planted the sapling and recalled her father writing to men in active service roles. Donald Potter spoke about the shed behind the church where spotters watched the enemy aircraft for hours at a time. Citizens volunteers keeping their community safe from the war. And most of all, they remembered that day in 1944 when they were as young as the new formidable oak tree on Wyndham Green. My name is Ben Johnson, and I'm going to be discussing the oak tree 
present in Colt Park at the Samuel Colt Memorial. Upon her death in August of 1905, in a gesture of generosity, the widow of Samuel Colt, Elizabeth Hart Jarvis Colt, bequeathed the grounds of the Colt family estate to the people of Hartford, Connecticut, for the public enjoyment by the city to which the Colt family and company had become an integral part. The park, adjacent to the historic Colt factory, has become a feature of the community, bringing a large open expanse of green space to the urban landscape. Elizabeth Colt's gifted the estate grounds to the people of Hartford and the workers of the Colt factory expanded the growing urban park system in the city of Hartford. The new park gave the industrial workers of Hartford a pastoral respite from the daily pressures of urban life. Every visitor who enters the park from the Morris Street and Weathersfield Avenue entrance passes a large stately oak tree that towers over the park. In the summer months, the grand old oak casts a canopy of shade over the memorial monument to Samuel Colt that had been commissioned by Elizabeth Colt. Over the course of the last 116 years since Elizabeth Colt donated the land for a park, the old oak witnessed the momentous events involving the workers of the nearby Colt factory. The tree was there for the massive expansion of the factory workforce during the two world wars and the later contractions of the post-industrial era. In 1986, the tree oversaw one of the most tumultuous chapters in the history of the Colt Company. In January of 1986, after 10 months of working without a contract, the workers of the Colt factory voted to go on strike and walk out of the factory. The strike began when factory management demanded the workers make concessions on both pay and medical coverage, despite the fact the company posted a profit of over $135 million in the previous year. The workers prepared for a protracted fight, but no one could have predicted just how protracted it would become. The strike would be one of the longest running strikes in U.S. history, and hands down the longest labor dispute in the history of the state of Connecticut. As the workers went on strike, factory management brought in non-union workers to replace the striking workforce. Tensions between the strike workers and strike breakers were high, and there were numerous confrontations that unfolded on the picket lines maintained by the striking workers. The Colt Company suffered from the effects of the strike. The company, determined to carry on with production using non-union workers, began to pay a price for its use of strike breakers. These untrained workers produced poor quality products and sales declined as the company's reputation suffered. In 1988, Colt lost their contract with the United States government to provide their flagship M16 platform to the military. As the years of the strike ground on, both sides paid a significant price. After four long years, the strike finally came to an end in March of 1990. Ultimately, the long-suffering union workers saw victory in the resolution to the strike. The workers' settlement included $113 million in back pay, a 13% wage increase, and a union member stock program that gave the workers an 11.5% ownership of the company. The Oak and Coltsville Park, that had been present for the life of the Colt factory, has seen the Colt company pass from the hands of its founder to his widow through numerous changes of leadership ultimately coming to rest at least partly in the hands of the workers who had made the Colt Company a success. The Oak watched over the last few years of the factory until the factory closed its doors as a production facility in 1994. The tree stands today vigilant as ever as new life has been brought to the old Colt grounds. 
Developers in the city of Hartford have adapted the old factory to new use, but its blue minaret remains a prominent feature of the Hartford skyline. As a major feature of the Coltsville National Park, the tree will continue to shade the Samuel Colt Memorial and welcome generations to come to enjoy the bequest of Elizabeth Hart Jarvis Colt. Hey, I'm Caitlin Oberndorfer, and I'll be talking about the blue cedar trees of Cedar Hill Cemetery, Hartford, Connecticut. Five days before Christmas in 1920, state police apprehended Antonio Fiscari and Lawrence White at Cedar Hill Cemetery, 56 years after the cemetery's creation at the close of the Civil War. Police spotted Viscari early that morning sneaking into the cemetery, conspicuously bearing a handsaw. The Hartford Current reported that Viscari slipped past dense sections of graves into a parcel of secluded wood on the top of the hill, the base of Greater Hartford Area's Cedar Mountain. To reach this section of cemetery, Viscari would have passed Cedar Hill's entrance into the ornamental foreground, a space designed by the cemetery's first superintendent and landscape architect, Jacob Wiedemann. This 65-acre foreground still showcases a fraction of Cedar Hill's collection of over 2,000 trees across 100 different species, mainly specifically imported to the site to provide a buffer from the road front. Viscari might have noticed this canopy stretched through the Gilded Age burial ground, providing a shady final resting place to the region's most recognizable celebrities, including Jacob Wiedemann, buried in Cedar Hill Cemetery nearly 40 years before. With his handsaw, Viscari attempted to cut down one of the younger trees of the cemetery, what the current described as a blue cedar, resembling a modern Christmas tree, and formerly known as a blue atlas cedar. Later that afternoon, police apprehended another man, Lawrence White, for the same crime. Both Foscari and his partner faced steep penalties, including fines of $100 and a six-month jail time for a long string of year-round thefts. One can easily dismiss this caper as a 19th century oddity, especially considering blue atlas cedars are no longer as unusual in Connecticut as they were in 1920. Nonetheless, the heist and the trees of Cedar Hill Cemetery represent Jacob Wiedemann's contribution to both the development of landscape architecture as a formal profession and the rural cemetery movement as a Connecticut phenomenon. Nearly 30 years before Wiedemann drew up the landscape plans for Cedar Hill Cemetery and roughly 90 years before this theft, the rural cemetery movement began in America with creation's first rural cemetery in 1831, Mount Auburn Cemetery, Massachusetts. Unlike their more traditional 18th and 19th century counterparts, like Hartford's ancient burying ground or the Old North Cemetery, these new cemeteries stood apart from burial grounds abutted against town churches, are tucked away in urban communities with orderly rows despite surrounding landscapes, curves, and contours. Combining nature and man-made intervention on the landscape, Cedar Hill boasted sweeping views, expansive tree collections, water features, and an intentional park-like feel, not only designed by architects like Wiedemann, but managed by them. From 1865 through 1870, Wiedemann stood as the cemetery's first superintendent, while concurrently assisting the development of the 19th century national movement to create parks and urban industrial spaces like Hartford. In this intersection of movements, Wiedemann met his notable contemporary and mentor, Hartford native Frederick Law Olmsted, landscape architect of New York City Central Park. Historians lament that this 30-year partnership has obscured Wiedemann's legacy. However, the Cedar Hill Foundation has maintained that the greatest window into his philosophy of landscape design um, and stands as his contribution to the Cedar Hill Cemetery and his intentional development of its extraordinary arboretum under his care. 
Wiedemann's use of imported trees in Cedar Hill Cemetery, like the Blue Atlas Cedar, mirrored his understanding of evergreens in his piece, Beautifying Country Homes. Wiedemann located trees near water features to their inherent tranquility to intentionally remind the viewer similar imagery of mourning found in the 19th century headstones. In his 1888 publication, Modern Cemeteries, Wiedemann even argued that above ground gravestones should be abandoned altogether in order to avoid blocking the view of such trees central to an open lawn design. Today in tours of the cemetery, these trees continue to rival the prominence of even its Gilded Age monuments. Although time and the ravages of New England weather precipitated the loss of Wiedemann's trees, even the blue cedars, Cedar Hill's arborist collection still speaks to his original vision for the rural cemetery movement. Through the 21st century, the cemetery's governing body has painstakingly replaced these originals according to his original design. With any luck, they'll continue to attract local tourists, at least those without an extensive but clumsy knowledge of Christmas trees and handsaws. My name is Pat Wallace, and I am telling the story of mystery trees in Edgewood Park, New Haven. In February 2020, a volunteer working in Edgewood Park in New Haven made a surprising discovery. He spotted two tall evergreen trees with red bark and thought he had found redwood trees. However, in the U.S., redwoods grow only in Northern California and Southeastern Oregon. They require specific conditions only found there. According to the Urban Resources Initiative at Yale, the trees in Edgewood Park are saguaro trees, a variety of cypress native to Japan. How and why did trees native to Japan get to Edgewood Park in New Haven? The city of New Haven did not list that species in the inventory of trees for Edgewood Park in 1911, when decisions were being finalized by the Olmsted Brothers firm in a redesign of the park first established in 1880. The National Park Service reports that there is no archived list of the trees brought by the Olmsted Brothers for planting in the park. However, clues point to that firm as the source of the mystery trees. It is a story of relationships among a group of horticulturalists on three continents over seven de decades. First, Dr. George Rogers Hall of Bristol, Rhode Island began a lucrative export business from Japan in the 1850s. Next, Robert Fortune, who was doing a brisk business selling plants from Japan to Europeans, obtained a plant he needed from Hall. In return, Fortune gave Hall a vital piece of technology a glass-covered plant box developed by a British physician, Nathaniel Ward, that made it possible for plants to travel for four to five months. Hall used Wardian boxes in 1861 to make the first transfer of plants from Japan to Boston. Building upon that success, Hall brought a second shipment to New York the following year, including the Sawara Cypress. Samuel Brown Parsons, credited with being the most important single figure in the successful cultivation of these Japanese trees in America, requested it and received that shipment in New York. After the Civil War, wealthy New Yorkers were eager to add splendor to their estates by planting exotic new items from Japan. S.B. Parsons Jr., grandson of the first Samuel B. Parsons, grew up in the family business and gained extensive knowledge of these imported plants. He joined the Calvin Vox firm and worked there for a quarter century. Frederick Law Olmsted and Calvin Vox bought plants from Parsons and Company Nursery in Flushing, New York, 
for both Central Park and Prospect Park in Brooklyn. Because Olmsted and Vox designed parks as partners, it is easy to speculate that the two saguaro cypress trees in Edgewood Park might have come from the Parsons nursery. The Olmsted-Vox Parsons relationships persisted into the second generation. Four of the 11 people that founded the American Society of Landscape Architects in 1899 came from these three families. Frederick Law Olmsted Jr., John Charles Olmsted Jr., the society's first president, Samuel Parsons Jr., and Downing Vox. The transfer of plants and technology and the relationships among these horticulturalists and landscape architects are part of the story of Edgewood Park. Both Frederick Law Olmsted Sr. and Calvin Vox and the Olmsted Brothers firm shared a philosophy that emphasized the native, the wild, and the natural. However, they did incorporate some exotic non-native plants in their work. Ken Chaya, co-author of a recent map of the trees in Central Park, described the work of Frederick Law Olmsted Sr. He said that Olmsted used trees the way an artist used colors, an approach passed on to the Olmsted brothers. A decade before the work in Edgewood Park, John C. Olmsted spoke to a meeting of park superintendents in Hartford in 1901. He said, imagine a hundred acre lot covered with practically uniform mixture of 10 kinds of trees, all from 20 to 40 years old. It would be monotonous. Edgewood Park fit that description. When the Olmsteads began work, it was 113.59 acres with exactly 10 tree varieties. The Olmsteads, known for an aversion to novelty, fashion, or decoration for its own sake, may have incorporated non-native trees to add subtle variety to woods that might otherwise have been too monotonous. In Edgewood Park, the two saguaro cypress trees border the park road and walking paths in the midst of native trees and plants. New Haven planned improvements to Edgewood Park at the same time a citizens group hired Frederick Law Olmsted Jr. and Cass Gilbert to create the 1910 city plan for New Haven. New Haven, an industrial city, did as larger cities were doing at that time, influenced by the parks movement, the city beautiful movement and the progressive era. New Haven imagined a grand future for itself as a much larger city and wanted to be ready for it. Perhaps the Sawara Cypress tree mystery in Edgewood Park cannot be solved. However, the Olmsteads had the relationships, access to products and the design ideas that would make them the likely source. Only the trees know for sure. My name is Garrett Cernich, and I am telling the story of the Clinton Chestnut Oak. On the town green of Clinton, Connecticut, across from the town hall and overlooking the main street and the coastline, stands a majestic chestnut oak at the height of 62 feet and a spread of 87 feet. Chestnut oaks served as a critical resource for shipbuilding industries throughout the shoreline towns of Connecticut during the 1800s. Known back then as Kenilworth until 1838, Clinton shipbuilding industry dominated its harbor. The chestnut oak is one of the largest species of trees in the world, consisting of over 500 types. It has incredibly durable hardwood, making it very resistant to insects and fungus. Chestnut oak wood can serve many uses, like furniture making, flooring, barrels for wine making, and of course for shipbuilding. Besides its use as the building material for the ship, chestnut oak is important in the longevity of the ship itself, as it can handle a beating brought upon by the great waves of the Atlantic Ocean. However, 
Barnacles could be as destructive by eating away at the ship's hull. Barnacles could be so devastating since they were a silent danger for how ship's crews could not tell how bad the hull was being eaten until the water started to leak inside the vessel. Having a hull made from a dense wood such as chestnut oak would slow down the barnacles. However, when the damage was too much for the crews to repair on board, they resorted to returning to a local harbor like that of the Clinton Harbor for repairs. The repairs involved workers removing the barnacles from plugging the holes with wood and tar, and finally reinforcing it with copper plating to ensure a tight seal and keep the ship afloat. In the 19th century, workers in Clinton constructed a frame out of the wood by superheating the planks and bending them to a curve fitted to a chassis. When they set all the planks in place, workers nailed them down, steamed and caulked to ensure waterproofing. Finally, workers covered the inside with tar for an additional layer of waterproofing, along with applying copper plating to strengthen the planks. After completing the frame, they installed flooring and construct compartments inside, along with installing the mast before having the ship be ready for sailing in the open ocean. Ensuring well-built ships that stayed afloat proved a very important industry for shoreline towns in Connecticut during the 1800s. Many other industries along with the shoreline relied upon the local shipyards and harbors for the constant flow of new vessels, along with keeping them in good shape. These included the trading companies, along with the whaling and fishing companies, all of which contributed heavily back to these shoreline communities in forms of goods they produced, monetary values, and jobs. The shoreline shipbuilding industries and the impact they had on all of Connecticut would never have been possible had there not been the appropriate types of trees, such as the chestnut oak or any other family of oak present in the region, to be used to build the strong and sturdy ships that were required across the entire shoreline. My name is Ben Haberman, and I'll be telling the story of a black cherry tree in Madison. Connecticut is known for the popular beaches of the Long Island Sound, but the coast was not always the go-to vacation spot. The shoreline underwent a transformation from a site of shipbuilding and commerce to a leisure destination. Madison's metamorphosis can be seen through the eyes of a 50-foot black cherry tree located across the street from the Madison Beach Hotel on West Wharf Road. Black cherry trees can be found throughout the eastern side of the United States and have a long history with Native American tribes, including the Quinnipiac, who resided in Middletown and on the shoreline. They created medicine and sedatives from the fruits and roots to help quell fevers, coughing, sores, burns, and intestinal worms. Around 200 years ago, this tree began to sprout near one of Madison's ports. Workers built over 27 different kinds of ships, conducted trade, and commercially fished the sound at one point reeling in 200,000 whitefish a day to be used and sold as fertilizer. The ships made of local material mainly transported cargo such as produce, livestock, and hay to New York. By 1850, the American shipbuilding industry had fallen into international insignificance due to the introduction of new metal ships. This made wooden shipbuilding a thing of the past and very few Americans had experience with this new craft. Builders also depended heavily on European schematics. Additionally, smaller ports lacked the capital to break into the new market, which led to many wooden shipyards becoming obsolete, and Madison was no exception. The black cherry tree witnessed the downfall of the West Wharf seaport, and in 1890, a neighboring shipyard caught fire along with two schooners. The fall of shipbuilding in Madison coincided with the introduction of the Shoreline Railroad. 25 years after the Civil War, there was more than a fourfold increase of operating railroad miles throughout America. Traveling before trains was an expensive, long, and arduous undertaking only made by the wealthy. With greater access to railways, traveling became more accessible, cheaper, and easier. This created opportunities and laid the foundation for the suburb. 
Workers could now travel for jobs and were no longer tied to a city. This transition brought people and wealth into smaller towns like Madison, which funded the construction of schools, churches, and a library, many of which still stand today in some form or another. Train popularity, coupled with the growing middle class, led to a rise in vacationing. Workers earned better wages, leaving them with a disposable income, as well as more time off to recuperate from long hours. This new sense of freedom led to newspapers taking out ads for shoreline vacations, which promoted fishing, swimming, and breathing fresh summer air. By 1855, it is estimated that America had as many as 300,000 tourists a year, with a third of them heading to the beach. The Black Cherry Tree witnessed the rise in vacationing through the opening of the Madison Beach Hotel, which served as a social center for locals and tourists who wished to partake in activities like swimming, fishing, tennis, and informal parties. When the First World War broke out, life around the Black Cherry Tree grew tense and the health benefits of the shoreline served to aid in the mental recovery of the sailors. The Madison Beach Hotel rented out its rooms and amenities to the U.S. Navy and became a convalescent home for officers. It was the perfect location due to the proximity of the railroad and the open beaches, which allowed for large naval vessels to come and go with ease. The Black Cherry Tree has watched over the shoreline, assisted and experienced the recovery of health and the economy. It has sprouted in times of great production and trade. It has listened as railroads and steamboats filled the air with mechanical whistles. Every summer, it watches tourists and locals alike pass under its branches on their way to enjoy a day at the beach. Hi, my name is Tom Aronimo, and I'm going to tell the history of a hickory tree in Hartford, Connecticut. On April 4th, 2021, a pignut hickory tree that towered above Spring Grove Cemetery in Hartford died due to rot and storm damage. Not only did this hickory stand at 104 feet tall and provide shade for those buried underneath its 74-foot spread, but it is a window to Hartford's past. Cultivation of hickory trees in America began around 1750 and proved to be highly useful as the wood is heavy and tough, yet flexible and shock-resistant. Spring Grove Cemetery developed in 1844, and due to the tree's size and the 1800s tombstones crowded around its trunk, this hickory likely stood there since the cemetery's inception and possibly several decades prior. Hickory was the choice back then for wagon wheels, tool handles, and more specifically for this story, baseball bats. To capitalize on baseball as a booming industry, the Massachusetts-based Tobern Brothers Manufacturing expanded their operation to Hartford in 1912 to produce baseballs. A quarter mile away from our hickory tree and a stone's throw from today's Dunkin' Donuts Park, Tober focused on expanding their product line. Tober's reputation for quality rose, creating baseball bats using local hickory and prov provided the equipment for the local baseball community. Baseball had come to Hartford in 1874 when the Hartford Dark Blues played at the Hartford Ball Club grounds located in today's Colt Park. They played in the National Association of Professional Baseball Players, which became the National League in 1876, the same National League that is part of Major League Baseball today. One of the team's first investors and team president, Morgan Bulkley, also president of Aetna Life Insurance Company, and later becoming Hartford's mayor, United States, United States Senator, and Connecticut's 54th governor. Bulkley's accomplishments as a politician and businessman vaulted him to be chosen as the first president of the National League which ultimately landed him in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Greed led to the Dark Blues' downfall. After Bulkley ceded the National League presidency to William Hulbert, owner of the Chicago White Stockings, 
Holbert sought to restrict team ownership to cities with 75,000 or more residents. Hartford only had 40,000 residents, but were good enough in 1875, second place, that they were going to be allowed to stay in the National League. The team's finances, however, were weak, and New York Mutual's president conspired to lure the team to Brooklyn, and the Dark Blues became the first team to relocate without changing ownership, becoming the Brooklyn Hartfords. Despite all the promises made to them, the Brooklyn Hartfords disbanded in 1877 after only one season. Since then, only semi-professional and minor league baseball has been played in Hartford. The AA minor league Hartford Yard Goats now play at Dunkin' Donuts Park, just about a mile away from where professional baseball began in Connecticut 147 years ago. As for our fallen hickory, may it be remembered not for the nearly two centuries of coverage it provided for those who lay in the cemetery, but for the beginnings of America as an independent nation, building goods with tools made of its bones, blazing trails on the backs of its wagon wheels, and the pop of a well-struck baseball sailing far over the outfield fence. To learn more, read Dr. Glazer's article about witness and memorial trees in the spring 2021 issue of Connecticut Explored online at ctexplored.org. Want to know more about Connecticut's landmarks, museums, art, and history? Subscribe to Connecticut Explored magazine in print to your mailbox or digitally to your inbox. Visit ctexplored.org to subscribe. And for a daily dose of history, visit Today in Connecticut History, produced by the Office of the State Historian at todayinctshistory.com.